Hello everyone, my name is Doilika Gottlieb and I would like to welcome you to European Health Union Now, a podcast series produced by the European Health Forum Gastein for the European Health Union Initiative. Welcome and thanks for tuning in to the fifth edition of the podcast series European Health Union Now, which will look at the situation of rare disease patients in Europe, what it means to live on the wrong side of the border, why orphan drugs are a different kind of animal, and what collaborative partnerships are needed to improve the situation of patients. Just a few facts and figures to paint a picture of the current situation. There are around 30 million rare disease patients in Europe. 50% of them are children. 30% of these children don't live till their fifth birthday. And 95% of rare disease patients are without a treatment option altogether. The development of orphan drugs is a financially risky and not a very lucrative business actually for pharma companies. While a lot needs to be invested into research and development, 48% of orphan medicinal products, the so-called OMPs, in the EU have a revenue of less than 10 million euros. On the other hand, also payers face difficult decisions on reimbursing often very expensive orphan therapies for a small patient population. Though the situation for patients has clearly improved since new European legislation was introduced in the year 2000. For example, the number of authorized OMPs has risen from 8 to 182. I think there is a consensus in the community that new models are needed for the treatment of rare disease patients. And the current OMP regulation review represents an opportunity to bridge at least some of these gaps. And I'm delighted now to talk about all of this and much more with our guest today, Dimitrios Atanasiu. Dimitrios has more than 25 years of experience with international business projects, and he's worked in various countries in consulting, developing and reorganizing companies. But when his son was diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, an incurable rare disease, he became a passionate international patient expert and advocate for Duchenne and rare diseases in general. Dimitrios is a board member of the World Duchenne Organization and the European Patients Forum, and he also represents Eurordis as a pediatric committee member in the European Medicines Agency. In these roles, Dimitrios promotes the rights of patients with rare diseases to have access to the best care possible and to new, safe and affordable drugs. A very warm welcome to you, Dimitrios. Thank you very much, Dorley. I think you described very, uh, let's say, uh, very colorful the situation of rare diseases. Thank you. Thank you, Dimitrios, and thanks for joining me here today. Do you agree to what I was saying initially, that uh, progress has actually been made when it comes to orphan drugs? Yes, uh, progress has been made both in rare diseases and pediatrics, that's for sure. And as you said, we are just under, let's say, 200 treatments at this phase, but we have 7,000 rare diseases. So with this pace, most probably will take us, I think I was discussing with Jan Lecam two days ago, and it was 300 years, our calculations. So yes, there is progress, but we don't have the time. 
Yeah, 300 years is not really a time span any of us can wait for or even imagine, right? And especially we have to think that there is one specific fate and one specific life behind each of these diseases, right? I think actually there are more than one, you know, yes. specific life. They have many lives because I can tell you for sure, as you said, the numbers are, uh, are staggering. 50% of uh, the children with rare disease don't really get to their fifth birthday. But also one third of the mortality in the infancy is through the rare diseases. And uh, I was looking with some statistics in Ireland that they did a prospective study on their uh, mortality, let's say, rate between 2001 and 2016. And actually, the 56% of mortality was from rare diseases. 56%. So this is, a, at least as a society, it should be a very high priority for our children with rare disease or without, really. Would you mind telling us a bit about your personal story, how and why you got involved in the rare disease community and how that journey has been for you? It was quite a ride, I have to say. I can imagine. Uh, yeah, my background is in finance and stock exchange and private banking. Then I was working for many years as a consultant for companies. And in my previous life, this is what I was doing. Then uh, we got the diagnosis of my son. It was my first child, so I couldn't really see any difference because I had nobody to compare him with. So he was looking fine to me. But then accidentally, we went with a gastroenteritis in the hospital and we get out with Duchenne. And as you said, Duchenne is a nightmare of disease, one of the more common, more lethal diseases in rare diseases. So it is basically destroys your muscles and it starts from the legs and moves to your hands, then to your lungs, to your uh, breathing system and your heart is a muscle. So it, it is quite an interesting ride. And why I got involved, to be honest, you know, in, in our rare disease field, you have two choices. Either you isolate yourself, you hide from from the world, we have to remember that more than 70% of them are genetic. So in some societies, this has this comes with a price. If you are carrying a gene that it can cause a rare disease. So everybody's usually very quiet, let's say about it. So it's flee or fight. And I was never too good in flee, I guess. So then I realized that, you know, the chances of survival for my son and his life expectancy is limited. So I, I'm thinking of trading him with other children. So that's my decision that can keep me going, let's say, in the morning. So, yeah, that's, that's why I'm in this sport, let's say. Yeah, and I can also imagine that, you know, one reaction might be that you would just want to hide away. And were you referring to almost feelings of guilt because of the genetic disorder? Well, at least for that one, let's say we were a little lucky because uh, ours was a de novo mutation. 70% of our diseases are not de novo, they are genetic origin. So you are a carrier or you're carrying the gene. And at least 90% of our mothers that usually, let's say, uh, are bringing the gene to, to the children that are feeling really, really guilty because you're supposed automatically to protect your child and then you gave him with something you didn't want to give. And that's why also we have very uh, often, uh, let's say, one-parent families because somebody of the two decided to go or examine other options. Let's call it like that. Mm -hmm. Would you mind sharing with us what a typical day for your son looks like, or if there is even such a thing as a typical day for him? It doesn't exist, a typical day. So I guess it depends where you are in the pathway. A typical day for Hermes, is the name of my son who has the son, is to start with his electric wheelchair. He's a lucky one to have one because of some friends that we have, and let's see if they provided one. So he goes to school. He's enjoying his life very much. And I think this is the center of his life, the school. Most of our children are really happy in school with their friends. Like 
all of us children, they cannot see really the difference. Of course, he gets very angry because he cannot walk or play football like the others. But then he tries to compete in areas that, let's say, he's stronger. Then, of course, we have to do hydrotherapy, physiotherapy, logotherapy, horse riding for the weekend because we cannot find any more time inside the day. And multiple exams, multiple visits to the hospitals. And this is in a normal non-COVID period. I think you understand that during the COVID, let's say, our life became even more complicated. And one of the side effects that we had in rare diseases, it was the lack of receiving the standard of care. So my son stopped walking during the COVID because he couldn't have access to the hydrotherapy and to the physiotherapy. So, yeah, that limits your life expectancy also. So you understand that. Yeah, I can imagine because that is what we've seen with many non-communicable diseases during COVID, right? that therapies were neglected. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that with us. I really appreciate that. Maybe we should look a bit at the regulation side. Currently, medicines are a member state competence primarily, yet the policies and the financing of rare diseases vary greatly across the EU. So basically, it can make all the difference whether you're born on one side of a border or another with a rare disease, right? You are completely right. Your uh, life depends on which border you are really sitting on. Best example we can say in access, at least in rare disease, can be Germany. So if you are uh, two kilometers from the border, in the correct side of the border, you live. If you are two kilometers on any other side of the border, you die. It's so simple. I like that. You know, it doesn't get any simpler. So this is, has multiple layers. So the one layer is the regulatory pathway, the central regulatory pathway. I think we have achieved a lot in this part. So the regulation allows you to grant access to Europe of innovative or non-innovative, but anyway, effective and safe treatments for patients with rare diseases. That, that was a big success. But at the end, you know, the regulation might provide you access to Europe. It doesn't mean that it provides you access to the patient at the other side of the end, because you have the EHDA procedure, you have the reimbursement procedure, you have the national procedures, and you have other ideas also, let's say, and uh, national characteristics that sometimes work in your benefit or work against you. Mm -hmm. You're saying it's as simple as that. And yes, it is. It's, you know, either to live or to die, but it's also as tragic as that, right? How can we make sure that uh, access is improved for rare disease patients all over Europe? I think maybe starting we can learn from COVID. Mm -hmm. So I think when we were discussing rare diseases, and especially the last years, although the communities are making enormous effort to keep it on the surface, to highlight the unmet need, we tend to forget easily the things that are not in our home, you know. Uh, but they are in 30 million people's homes. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about, I don't know, 7-8% of our population. It's next door. And Darwinistically, it's smart to look to it because, you know, one in 10 or one in 15, it means that it, you will get it in your own family. Mm -hmm. So it's smart to deal with it. So, but th that's my personal, let's say, opinion. But when we were discussing COVID and we were discussing how we can maybe buy together, how we can distribute, how we can organize in a European level. I can tell you two years ago when we were discussing this for rare diseases, it was something that nobody can conceive, that it's impossible. It can never happen. We cannot do it. And actually it did happen. Maybe we should see how long the memory is uh, of our regulators or policymakers to see if we can continue it to happen. 
I don't know if you're aware, but the European Health Union initiative is calling for exactly that, that there is more collaboration between the different member states, especially in situations like that, but not only, not only in times of a pandemic. That's, I think, where we have to look, as you're saying, learning from this crisis. The OMP regulation is currently under review, that regulation from 2000 that I was mentioning earlier. Could you tell us what the expectations are of this regulation within the rare disease community? The expectations. Well, I would say, first of all, that it is a very, it was and it still is, a very successful regulation. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of orphan drug designations. We have some products in the market. I think the system adapted well to this regulation. Like all regulation, it, it cannot cover everything. And maybe what are the expectations of the regulation? I won't go to the nitty-gritty details of the articles of the regulation. But what we expect from the regulation is to provide the flexibility that life sciences demand in the development. So, for example, I don't know, five years ago we have 15 NTMPs. And if you do a horizon scanning, you are waiting for 280 MPs. Whatever we build now as a on stone regulation, most probably it will not be able to copy with the technologies that are coming in a form of a wave in the next five years. So I think what we need in the regulation, obviously, is, let's say, motives to create and uh, accelerate, let's say, the drug development in the orphan. You need some disadvantages when uh, all the players are not playing by the rules, and that's fair. Mm -hmm. We need access to affordable and accessible and safe medicines, but we don't need price cooking that we have seen, uh, thank God, very rarely. But still, it doesn't create a very friendly environment to the general public and to the patient community also. So what we need to work together for this regulation to take the consideration all the views but uh, i would say most of all to avoid to write it on the stone because yeah i think we are we are very very advanced from this period that we could write things on the stone things are involved very fast mm -hmm. okay thank you when you're talking about flexibility are you talking about from the public sector side regarding for example uh, granting fee waivers or market exclusivity for pharma companies or for research institutes? I think we need flexibility from all sides because the problem with the rare diseases is not a product or not a disease equivalent with the other one. And you might have, for example, for an ultra rare disease, a very small biotech that is producing a very costly ATMP technology that we know that they will never hit break even. I mean, we know that especially if you are a small biotech, let's say, based in the uh, US, and you have to uh, discuss with how many agencies are the HTAs. I think in Europe currently we have something like 40. I mean, in Spain is only 15 or something. So, and you have to negotiate with these agencies to prove evidence and to make mandatory agreements. Um, you will not do it. It's as simple as that. So people will not have access. So we have to have flexibility in the regulation we have to have flexibility because, for example, you might have an orphan drug designation, yes, for an ultra-rare disease, but eventually this mechanism of action or this technology or this product can be something that it can be used for a mass, let's say a bigger mass of patients for another disease. Should you keep your, let's say, orphan drug designation? These are questions that we should deal uh, case by case. So if we produce a flexible regulation, it will help us customize what are the current needs of the environment, to cover the high unmet need and prioritize even more 
which is something that I'm strongly favored, prioritize the areas of interest because it doesn't make any sense to produce another product where you have 40 in the pipeline. So yes, I think each of the products and each of, let's say, the conditions need to be treated as one separate. Maybe we can group them. Maybe we can even create technologies to group them uh, as treatments, but definitely we need to be flexible enough to accommodate anything we need to do in order to have access to these technologies and to the drugs. Okay, thanks very much for that insight. Could you also tell us a bit about the European reference networks and what role do they play for rare disease patients in Europe? I think that was the most innovative and fantastic idea that Europe have developed for rare disease, to be honest. If you ask me, and I know that nobody is listening to us, if the funding was enough, I will tell you, yeah, maybe too little. I wouldn't say too late, but let's say too little at the beginning. So hopefully we're expecting uh, ERNs to be also supported stronger because the concept is fantastic. So the idea is that you have the reference networks, centers of excellence that you can direct your patients. That's, that's a, a fantastic concept by default. But then, as usual, sometimes in Europe, you know, that's one of the bureaucracies that relatives we have to cut through, is that then you have the implementation. And the implementation, you need to devote resources and commitment. I think we need a little more support in this. I think we are in the correct direction. We have the new project uh, Eureka that is under development. I understand it was a test. It was a successful test. Mm -hmm. Some of the ERNs are more successful than others. This we can fix. They should be incorporated in the national healthcare systems. But we were talking, for example, that the data can move. I would like really to see how data can move more free, let's call it, inside Europe, which still we're struggling, even the ERNs. But we cannot move the patient. So the cross-border basically is there. But, you know, it's dead in the water. Nobody can use it because of the bureaucracies that we have and the lack of reimbursement. So I think we should consider in a continuum. We should see the patient journey, so the diagnosis, the prevention, first of all, which we don't look a lot of attention because it will have very high economies of scale for the health system. So if we do the prevention, we can save money to do the early diagnosis and to provide access. But I think we are looking from the backwards to the beginning, which is very interesting because it's not very used in the business area where I was working. So, yeah, I try to, to, to adapt, let's say. <laughs> and if we look at the current situation in Europe now, there is more money for health. That is a positive that has come out. The EU for health budget is higher. And also we're talking about a European health data space. Are you positive that that will also have a good impact on rare disease patients? Well, I have a child with terminal disease and I'm smiling. So I'm by default positive, by choice. So yes, I think it's positive. And I think that from this nightmare that called COVID, what we learned is something positive. We learned that there is no economy without health. So that's very important that health is back on the table because it was not on the table two years ago, not at least to this size. We have to be blunt. But I'm really worried if the rare disease or the pediatric disease will have enough funding through this for further development. So yes, health is there, but I want to see dedicated, serious investment to solve rare disease problems in Europe, but also to keep Europe in the forefront of innovation. Mm -hmm. Because either we want it, either we don't want it, the innovation at this moment at least is in US. Yeah. Although the initial technologies might be developed in Europe, but they are not coming, they are passing through years to come to Europe. So in order to do so, we really should take our business model, how we can keep Europe innovative and in front. 
Which is, again, something we've learned the hard way through COVID, right? That actually uh, yes. there's not enough of that <laughs> yes. in, in Europe. And you were saying before that there are a lot of learnings that we can take from COVID, right? That hopefully we won't forget what we have learned. Can you maybe just let us know a bit how COVID has impacted the rare disease patient community? You were saying there's a lack of access to therapies. Are there any other stories you could tell us? I think in general, the rare disease community is very, how you can say it? Uh, perseverance is one of our characteristics mm -hmm. because what everybody is passing through COVID, we passed it in everyday life. Right. So when somebody is sneezing next to a child that he has problems with uh, Let's say the respiratory system. issues that many of our children do. You know, we're already in quarantine by default. But I think the problem was the length of this situation. So we can be tolerant and pretty tough, let's say, for the acute situations. And we can deal with the acute situations. When this is exceeding some time, then, you know, even the toughest cannot copy with that. And as you said, it had a price. It had a price in... Um, in rare diseases, we had more cancellations or appointments than everybody else. Our children were struggling, and even the, the parents would not let them to go to the school. But even in uh, numbers, it's not published yet, but we are doing in uh, very one very innovative project we're running. In, it's called Share for Air. We do a research, in a global research, how the COVID affected the life expectancy and uh, heart data on rare diseases. And I can tell you that the first finding that we have to double check are that from the people with rare disease that got and reported COVID, 5% mm -hmm. died. Mm -hmm. And it is by far different from the average population. So we're working on that and we're expecting, really looking forward to get the results and happy to share with you when we get them. But I can tell you that it definitely affects them. Okay, thank you. Yes, please do share that. And I can only imagine uh, what we have gone through, the general population and in comparison, what a rare disease patient must have gone through. When we looked at research, we were already touching upon it a little bit before. We were saying that generally the research and development is long and is a complex process and the outcome is uncertain. And also it's quite dispersed across many different institutions and specialists. So you have research institutes involved in pharmaceutical companies, and they all invest time and money to develop a drug for a very small population and without knowing whether there is a chance of market authorization, let alone reimbursement then by the public sector. So do you see any cooperation or risk sharing models that could improve the research and development ecosystems for rare disease drugs, Dimitrios? I think there are many areas that we can do interventions, let's call it like that. But what we've seen, what we experienced in rare disease in the pipelines, where we have these problems, is that we don't think them in the continuum. So we have fantastic tools, we have regulations, we have data series agreements, we have FAIR, we have, we have everything. The problem is that we don't use our building materials to build a pathway for development, for early research, to access with the materials we have. We don't sit around the same table and find pathways, the risk pathways, to minimize this valley of death that we have between basic research and, let's say, the clinical trials. And after that, we also have another valley of death, you know, that, that's the, the part of access. So, for example, we have the ERNs. And we can have, let's say, the rare disease patients in these centers. But we didn't give them tools, and now we just gave them to do research. 
So how this can help you? The second is that we're talking about data and we have these fantastic initiatives about the European Health Data Space and various projects like Darwin, etc., etc. Still, and I can tell you from our condition to Sen, we have amazing silos. So we have everybody sitting on his data and not don't want, don't want to play with each other. I don't think it's my job really as a person advocate, although I'm doing it my job to fix this. I think this is Europe's job. I think European Union should say that, you know, data is data, it is an asset, it's owned by the patient, and we share. Because sharing is caring in our situation, and sharing is saving lives in our situation. And that's, for example, one very, very sharp, you know, area that uh, we can definitely do better. But also we can do better in how we finance our uh, research in Europe. So we finance 10 projects, okay, do they talk to each other? Do they measure the impact? Do they harmonize? And the harmonization of the regulatory work, I don't want to go there, so regulatory work between EMA and FDA, I think we can do better. For example, in Ducent, we have one drug approved in, in FDA that's not approved in EMA, and we have one drug approved in EMA that's not approved in FDA. So I'm trying to explain why this is happening to my fellow advocates, and nobody has an answer. I cannot give him an answer. We see that in the bigger scene as well, right? We've been talking about health in all policies for the last probably 20 years. And I don't think we can say that we're there. And as you know, at the European Health Forum Gastein, we try to facilitate exactly that discussion to bring all the players together around a table to discuss these issues. So that is our the little contribution that we try to make to uh, improve this. I think you're doing an amazing job, I have to say. And at least for rare disease, we can do even more amazing. We can continue to pushing because I know that currently, you know, we have a lot of work in UN in order to have global coverage and recognition of the rare disease needs. And this is, of course, a very successful initiative. I think it was signed and agreed two days ago or uh, 36 hours ago. And we're now trying to have the European Action Plan for Air Disease. Mm -hmm. So I think Einstein is a fantastic forum to build on this. Happy to bring my friends and we can discuss it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, we'll come back to that. You've mentioned the rare disease community and, and I was just wondering, is there more of that harmonization and more of the collaboration within the patient community or is there also a lack of that there? Well, uh, I think we have solved this many years ago. Mm -hmm. So we are very lucky that we have Eurordis and we established Eurordis and I think, I don't know how many hundreds of organizations we have. So in that part we do not have, let's say, a segmentation or lack of harmonization. What do we have is the lack of capacity mm -hmm. in different disease areas. But I think this is normal, even because of the numbers. So there are some diseases that you have three patients in Europe. Yeah, I can try to persuade everybody to make a patient organization. If you have two disabled children in your home, I can tell you, you are not an advocate anymore. So we need more tools to empower people. We need more advocates to give them a chance, you know, for their voice to be heard. Because even the, as you said, in the rare disease, let's say drug development pipeline, you see that there is a concentration to the more common, if we can call them like that, rare diseases. So to say it has 25,000 patients, for example, in, uh, in Europe. And diabetes, only in Greece, it has something like half a million. So yeah, if you compare the, no the numbers, you know, we're really small, but they are smaller. And how we can support them, how we can make their voice heard, how we can create a sexy pipeline 
or to create, you know, initiatives and intensive uh, incentives, sorry, to create drugs for them. That's something else. But I think as a community, we're doing good. I wouldn't say we have, uh, we're lacking harmonization between us, but uh, definitely we can do better with uh, harmonization with our policy officers, wherever they are. So Gunstein is doing a great job for that. Okay, okay thanks very much. Just before we wrap up, you come across as such a passionate, such a positive, such an optimistic person. And, you know, to be all that in your situation, what keeps you going and how do you make sure that you take care of your own well-being too? Uh, that's, a, that's a very good question. I think this is something you should ask my wife, to be honest, you know, because she's accusing me of that. But let's say I have my biggest teacher and my biggest motive inside the house. Mm -hmm. I know that the minutes of his life, I have to multiply the work and the impact I have with these minutes because the minutes I take from him and I give to others is one minute I less spend with him. Mm -hmm. So this is what drives me. And what fascinates me is the power. Not I wouldn't say heroes because you know, usually heroes always die at the end. So I would say the rare disease fighters and uh, the passion they have. And maybe the, the last one that's uh, always very fascinating is the so many children with rare disease, very heavy disease that we have institutionalized, and we have these parents that go and adapt them. So if they can do this, I can do better, definitely. So I, I'm just trying to do better a little, you know, for them, for my son, for myself, just to make it a little better. For the little fighter in, in yeah. your house. Thank you for that. And just as a final question, is there one big wish you have for the situation of rare disease patients in Europe? One. Mm. I know you must have made it. I can give you a small one. Okay. So maybe we can get our data together mm -hmm. and it's openable and shareable and fair. Mm -hmm. That's my small wish. And maybe my big wish and what we work for is a very well thought action plan for Europe, but not only in Europe, also in US and the other countries. An action plan that will build the pathway from early development to access. And we can have everybody together to build this pathway together because it's a long road. So we need a lot of people. Okay, thanks very much for wrapping our talk up so nicely. Thank you for joining me today, Dimitrios. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for this open conversation. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Please tune in again for our next podcast. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast. Please visit europeanhealthunion.eu to learn more and support the initiative and follow us at EHU Initiative on Twitter. Stay tuned for our upcoming events.